Good morning or good afternoon to everyone out there and happy National Teddy Bear Day. Uh, my name is Tom Hollingsworth. We're here with the Gestalt IT Rundown. As always, joining me on this side of my screen is uh, my wonderful co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, hi, how are you? Hello, Mr. Tom. It's good to be here. Um, thanks for having me be part of the rundown. Oh, this many years. Well, yeah. Okay. Hi. Well, we have a lot of storage stories and a lot of arm stories. So basically, I, I wanted to call in the, the the expert on all of those things. So, um, you know, it's been a little bit of a light uh, news week because of the Labor Day holiday in the US. So a lot of people just basically went into hibernation mode. Um, now that we're officially out of March, um, you know, hopefully things will pick up a little bit. Uh, but for those of you who are watching us on on uh, Gestalt IT's uh, YouTube channel, thanks for tuning in. We really appreciate it. You know, leave us a comment uh, if you have any questions about the stories. We've been getting some great comments uh, the last few weeks. Uh, for those of you who are following along on Facebook after the fact, uh, hello, and please make sure you like our page so you'll get notified whenever our videos get popped up. Um, but we're going to go ahead and open the show. Um, so I will go ahead and do the quick round of introductions. Um, Stephen, are you ready to do this? Ready to do this. All right. Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, where each week we meet to run down the IT news that has been happening over the last seven days, and we might make fun of it. My name is Tom Hollingsworth. I am your host, and joining me is my inimitable co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show today. Uh, it's great to be here, Tom. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Um, we've got a great lineup of news. Um, as I said in the pre-opening, uh, it's been a little light because of Labor Day, uh, but hopefully everybody else had a good chance to go out and enjoy some of the sunshine or whatever the weather was in your location. Unless you're in California, in which case we just hope you stayed away from the fires. Um, but we're going to go ahead and get started with our very first segment. Uh, this is news or nah. Strangely enough, even though it was a light news week, some things probably don't need as much introduction as you might think. So we're going to run down some quick stories here. And uh, Stephen's going to tell me whether or not he thinks these are newsworthy. Um, and we're going to start off, well, we're going to start off in the kitchen. Uh, Progress, developer tool company in based in Boston, announced this week that it is buying automation darling Chef for around $220 million. Uh, Chef has been one of the go-to tools for technology pros when it comes to starting their automation journey. You probably hear them mentioned in the same breath as Puppet and Ansible. Um, Chef has been a 100% open source company since last year, and they had recurring revenues of around $70 million. Uh, the press release from Progress makes it sound like Chef is probably going to get absorbed into the company and that its technological distinctiveness will be added to their own. Um, Stephen, one last chef in the kitchen. Is this news or not? Um, I say it's news, but perhaps um, not specifically only about it. I mean, you know, obviously chef is, well, chef is cool and chef has been something that a lot of people have enjoyed. Um, I have a feeling that, um, you know, a lot of things are going to change. Um, the optimistic stance says this is an example of a company uh, more of a traditional enterprise IT company moving into the next generation of IT and hopefully embracing their culture and um, stuff like that. But on the other hand, um, you could also spin it as, wow, Chef must have really run out of money. Um, so I'm not sure. Um, but I do think that we're going to see a lot more of these mergers and consolidations. And, and every time I see a product like Chef that is, um, you know, it's a tool that becomes a product that becomes a company that becomes, you know, looking for a revenue source. 
um, seems like an acquisition to me. Yes, Shep was on their Series E, and they had not taken funding for the last uh, 18 months, I believe was the report. So this this kind of feels like uh, they were getting to the stripes on the runway, and it's it's time to take off or take off through the woods. So good luck to the folks at Chef, and congratulations to the folks at Progress. All right, moving on to our next story, and it's it's about ARM. Uh, so last week, Marvell announced that they are canceling the upcoming Thunder X3 ARM server processor. Now, this was a general purpose ARM CPU that was designed for the growing server market. Um, instead, Marvell has just decided to double down on what they do best, which is designing chips specifically for hyperscalers. Um, the most recent earnings call was kind of interesting, though, because Marvell basically admitted that they're really only targeting the five biggest hyperscale companies out there, which coincidentally enough seem to be cloud companies. Uh, the problem is, is that AWS is already making their own ARM architecture, and uh, Marvell was basically forced to admit that this gamble is only going to pay off if the other four don't follow in their footsteps. So, uh, Stephen, Marvell's losing losing a big arm of their business. Is this news or not? Well, you know, I've been excited about what they were doing with the Thunder X3, uh, you know, and it, it was I've been following this um, because personally, I'm pretty uh, excited about ARM in the data center, um, just like I'm excited about it anywhere. I mean, it's a it's it's cool to see a new architecture. It's, um, you know, the Amazon, you know, ARM stuff has been, you know, really cool. But, um, you know, I really feel like this is a sign that, frankly, there just wasn't a market for it. I mean, if there was you can spin it how you want, but basically if if OEMs had been building it or if customers had been demanding it, uh, Marvell would not be walking away from this thing. It was a good platform. It was an impressive platform. And, um, and, and one, by the way, too, that there are other companies uh, competing for. So as we're going to talk maybe a little bit later, um, you know, ARM themselves are also interested in the non-mobile market for it. So, um, I was really surprised by this story. I have to say, I'm, I'm uh, I'd say this is news. It was news to me, and I was pretty shocked. Yeah, I'm worried that Marvell's kind of doubling down on the hope that they can land one contract, and that will be their their gold mine for the next few years. Uh, but the problem is, and we've seen this a lot in in other enterprise IT vendors, um, if you're only selling to the top five or six companies in that market space, and all of them suddenly decide they don't like you for some reason. It's slim pickings down the market because you, you kind of have to hope that what you have translates well down there. Um, and if you work for a reseller that targets, you know, like Boeing or Microsoft or somebody like that, you, you kind of know what I'm talking about. So, you know, here's hoping this does not bode ill for the ARM server market in general. All right. It wouldn't be the rundown unless we had a security issue. And uh, this week, it comes back to Cisco. Uh, they decided to patch a few bugs in their enterprise communication tool Jabber last week. Now, why oh why would they do that? Well, it turns out that you could kickstart a cross-site scripting attack inside of the Chromium framework that serves as the foundation of Jabber with a single text message. Yeah. The CVE in question got a 9.9 .9 out of 10 on their rating scale, which is basically 0.1 away from, oh my God, the world is ending. Um, Cisco had to get some patches out really quickly. They managed to uh, you know, put some nice Wayne's coding over this and hopefully it won't be affecting anything anymore. Now, here's the issue though. It's funny that a lot of the, the vulnerabilities that we're starting to see coming out are coming from collaboration tools. I mean, I'm not going to say that I'm not a fan of Jabber, but I can count on this hand the number of times that I've used it and still have fingers left. Um, 
I think it's interesting that people are starting to exploit the tools that we're beginning to use from work from home. Now, Stephen, is this a concern? I mean, obviously, you know, a text, uh, a text attack on a collaboration tool isn't news or not, but is the bigger news story here that collaboration tools are suddenly under the gun? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that, um, you know, that, that I think a lot of us in the industry have been really terrified of. Um, you know, basically we've got, um, yeah, work from home. I understand it. It makes a lot of sense. But uh, if you're in the enterprise tech industry, um, you know, if you're in the enterprise security industry, you've got to be terrified about this stuff being all out there and people using these collaboration software like constantly. And not only that, but, you know, a lot of this stuff is becoming more and more and more advanced. I mean, um, you know, imagine um, like like what about OBS? I mean, how many how many techies are having their own little OBS studio at home? What about you know Zoom? I mean, you know, we've seen some concerns and serious concerns about their security. Um, you know, this is not a new. This is this, again, this is not news for Cisco as much as it is news for all of us that this stuff is happening. And um, with data outside the data center, with data at people's homes on their laptops at their coffee shop, um, outside of course. Um, wow. This is uh, pretty scary stuff. Yeah, and I think that, that, like you said, the problem that we we really hope that we're not facing is that the attack surface of our tools is fairly small. Um, but as more and more people use them, that just grows the attack surface, especially if there are easy ways to get in there. So let's hope that we can keep the patches rolling forward. Let's hope that the collaboration software that we're working with doesn't have any bugs. And let's hope we can all keep working from home and socially distancing ourselves. Um, now we're going to reach way, way back into the archives of storage to find out that uh, Fiber Channel may not actually be dead after all. Uh, Broadcom announced this week that they are now shipping Fiber Channel Generation 7, the newest release of the standard, 7. These switches run at 64 gigabits per second, which is double the speed of Gen 6 Fiber Channel. The technology is built on an acquisition that Broadcom got from Brocade several years ago when they busted that thing up and sold all the parts off. In fact, if you go look at the press release that was on the website, uh, we got it courtesy through Blocks and Files, um, all of the switches that are Fiber Channel Gen 7 are still uh, carried, they still carry the Brocade name. They're just the Brocade Generation 7 X whatever. So. Steven, uh, I'm sorry, I have to pull out my favorite Monty Python quote here. Fiber Channel being only mostly dead, is this news or not? Man, it's um, it's 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 not pining for the fjords, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> you know, Fiber Channel, um, I got to eat crow on this one because I used to do a storage seminar where I would travel the country um, with my loot in hand, no, uh, where I would um, basically say, uh, literally, I, I said, I, there will never be 32 gigabit fiber channel in volume and 64 gigabit fiber channel will never happen because everything is going to Ethernet. Um, I was wrong. I'm sorry. It was a poor prediction. It's here. Um, I think that it's, it's worth pointing out, though, uh, A, fiber channel is not dead for storage, but B, fiber channel is also starting to get use as a fabric for interconnecting NVMe and PCI Express devices. And I think that that's actually a really interesting angle for it. And, you know, it shows that, frankly, um, this is not a dead technology. This is this is something that's that's going. And um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, fiber channels, not dead, folks, not dead.
I thought it was interesting that in Chris Malore's article, uh, basically they mentioned NVMe over Fabric a hundred times in there. And it was like, oh, it's vastly superior to any fiber channel. It's just horribly complicated to set up and you really don't want to do that. So why not just pay a whole lot more money to do fiber channel instead? And it'll just keep on working. What can you do? Yeah, I know, right? All right, uh, that should do it for news or not today. We're going to go ahead and move on to our main stories. Um, you know, this is where we spend a little bit more time talking about things, and it wouldn't be right if we didn't spend a little bit more time talking about the Jedi contract. Let's be fair. This is the news gift that keeps on giving. This is basically like when your late night talk show host gets to make jokes about the president for four years. Um, because the U.S. Department of Defense has conducted a review of the award of the Jedi contract, and guess what they found out? The award of the contract to Microsoft is absolutely, totally valid and absolutely in no way politically motivated whatsoever. Thank you very much. Please don't ask any more questions. On the other hand, you have Jeff Bezos, who's the richest human being on the planet and doesn't like to lose. So they are going to announce, or they've actually already announced, that they're going to continue to contest this contract as much as they can for as long as they can because, wah, wah, this isn't fair. Amazon cites political interference from on high irregular reviews of the initial contract, which was awarded to Amazon, and some good old-fashioned stonewalling of the investigation. All of the things that you expected to find on your political interference bingo card, so if you got all those squares marked off, please see me for a free turkey. Uh, Amazon will be uh, a little bit upset because that 10-year, $10 billion contract contains 80% of the DOD's data. Um, whoever manages to get that, even if it swamps their entire network, is still going to be like, guess what we did? We built the biggest cloud there ever has been. Um, here's the thing, Stephen. Is this ever going to end? Or can somebody call the DOD and say, have you heard of this multi-cloud? I hear it's a thing. Well, man, um, I mean, this just smells like government procurement to me. I mean, those of you who aren't in the U.S. or haven't followed this, uh, this is how it goes. Um, people sue each other. Um, remember the, the the Air Force tanker refueling program. Remember the space launch system. Um, you know, the, these huge contracts, um, it's almost inevitable that they'll end up in court and that they'll be in court for a long, long time. Now, um, the amusing thing about this particular story is that essentially back when I first heard of it, I was like, well, of course, Amazon should get that contract. I mean, clearly AWS cloud is the best cloud. I mean, Duh. But then, you know, Microsoft got it as like Microsoft, you know, I mean, I mean, obviously they were up and coming, but in Azure was kind of cool, but it was kind of like, oh, I don't know. Honestly, looking at it now, I'm like, yeah, give it to Azure. That looks like a good place to put it. Um, you know, I'm not trying to weigh the merits of the case. I'm just like, um, you got credible, you got credible uh, platforms here. I, I did assume that the outcome of this thing was going to be multi-cloud, that it was going to be, okay, we'll give Amazon some, we'll give Microsoft some. Um, I suspect that long-term, this is going to go on Microsoft. I think Microsoft wins this thing. And, um, and, and honestly, um, they deserve it. They've got a good cloud. Yeah, I think that what what the the problem is is that whether or not you can argue that this was politically motivated or not, this is not like it was given to like okay, I got to say it, Oracle Cloud. Like somebody who we know can't handle this much data. They did pick the number 2 player in the market. So, I can't see a valid reason to not use Microsoft or at the very least say, okay, well, we're going to send 60% of our data to Microsoft and 40% over here to Amazon. So they shut up and quit trying to sue us. But ultimately, I think what's going to happen is 
five years down the road, somebody is going to finally make a case for, yeah, the guy who probably shouldn't have been involved in this had his fingers all over it. It was politically motivated. We don't like him anymore. And you're going to win a very big moral victory. And the last time I checked, moral victories don't have costs or revenue associated with them. So, but let's be fair. If there's any other person on the planet who could spend that much money on a moral victory, um, they don't care about morality anyway. So Jeff Bezos, good luck to you. I hope that this all works out in your favor. Um, maybe you can paint a big DOD sign on the side of your next rocket when you launch it. Um, we're going to move on to some more chip news. Um, speaking of ARM, ARM has released a new processor, the uh, ARM Cortex-R64. Actually, it's a 64-bit chip. It's the Cortex-R82. Um, this one is pretty unique because it's specifically designed for running compute on storage devices. Uh, the buzz around this chip comes from putting compute resources directly on the storage device, which is more secure, and it's easier to access important information. If the data doesn't have to move and you can access it where it lives, uh, that says something about data gravity. Uh, ARM has increased the capabilities of the processor over other members of the Cortex family, including adding a memory management unit to the mix to help the device start using virtual memory. Uh, I've heard that it is significantly faster, um, and uh, it even allows for some real-time processing. So, Stephen, you're our resident storage expert here. What does this mean for the future of running compute next to the storage that the data lives on? Yeah, I think this is really exciting. Um, you know, we've seen this with Storage Field Day. We've seen a bunch of companies that are trying to um, kind of devolve uh, the the distinction between storage and compute. Um, you know, I, I think that um, it, it there, there's this whole trend. Storage is it is it storage or is it data or is it information? Is it information processing? Is it data management? Is it storage management? Um, there are new solutions out there that are doing some very, very cool things. Essentially, like you said, move compute. Instead of trying to, to, to move the storage to the compute, move the compute to the storage, um, have intelligent, distributed, disaggregated storage systems. Um, you know, it, this is a trend. This is a very cool trend. And this processor actually could be extremely useful for some of these companies. I'm not going to you know, name the companies, but uh, essentially, if you if you look at the storage field day presentations from the last few years, you'll see that there are a couple of, of, of folks working on things that are like this. Another aspect here is, as we talked about earlier with the Marvell Thunder um, news, the, the Cortex-R, um, you know, you can look at this sort of as a server CPU as well. Um, in a way, it's analogous to the Xeon D, which is essentially a, you know, a data center, um, uh, support device CPU. This may may kind of be seem strange to people because people think, oh, the CPU goes in the server. But uh, of course, storage systems are just servers. They're just servers with lots of storage that run a special storage thing, and um, and and these CPUs can allow that to kind of you know pets or catalify in a way that that we haven't really been able to do in the in the past. So personally, I'm really excited about this. I think this is really, really cool stuff. And um, I actually am, 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 am playing with, a, you know, exploded uh, storage system myself that I'm trying to build. And yeah, it, it's this is this is awesome. I love it. I love it. Thank you, Arm.
I think it's funny that in the article that was mentioned, um, they basically call out the fact that ARM processors have been running inside of storage arrays for a long time to offload, uh, you know, processes from the main system CPU. So I think that what this is is just an attempt by ARM to kind of focus on that market and say we can make this run better, we can make this run faster if you're going to use it anyway. So you know, hopefully that will help out the storage market. And kind of like you said, there were some great presentations from Storage Field Day. Um, some of those companies might be a good idea to keep an eye on. If you want to learn more about that, head over to techfieldday.com and click on the link for Storage Field Day 20 and just peruse some of the great videos that we've recorded there. Alrighty, we're going to go ahead and move on to our next story, which involves AMD. So Patrick Kennedy over at Serve the Home has a great article about the latest AMD Epic CPUs. Of special note in this article is how the CPUs have been locked to a specific server maker. Manufacturers like Dell and HPE are doing this to increase security for their platforms, according to the reports. Uh, resellers and researchers in laboratories have discovered that unlike Intel's Xeon architecture, you can't just pop an Epic out of one server and put it into another. Uh, Patrick Patrick has narrowed the culprit down to AMD's Platform Secure Boot PSB feature. Ironically enough, the PSB is, an, uh, is a uh, Cortex-A5 ARM processor that's designed to verify all of the system when it boots. And so basically what it's saying is that's not the processor that shipped with this CP or this system. You're not allowed to have it in here. We're not going to boot the box. Now, Stephen, I don't know about you, but every time I hear about locking things down and keeping one manufacturer stuff from working in another, I start thinking about things like, you know, cell phones being locked to Verizon or AT&T, and it gives me the willies. Is this a good idea in the name of security, to be honest? Well, actually, you know, I would take a, a bit of a different spin on this. Um, and I can see why. I mean, obviously, the word locked, right? I mean, you know, it's kind of scary to think, oh, well, so I, we bought this Epic, um, you know, server CPU, and it can only be used in Dell servers now. And, and that's, I mean, let's just be very clear. When we say it can only be used in Dell servers, we're not, um, we're not messing around. There are literally fuses inside the CPU that are blown, and it cannot be used outside of it. it. And it's not that the server won't use the CPU. It's that the CPU won't allow itself to be used by a server that doesn't have signed BIOS or actually not BIOS, but, you know, EFI, you know, essentially the server, is, the CPU is blocking the use of that of anything that's not signed. The reason for this is because, as you mentioned, there's basically this secure, I, I'm going to use a different uh, company's term, the secure enclave on the chip um, that has uh, basically all the keys. And think about it this way. Let's say you wanted to break into a cloud server or some kind of, you know, some, some kind of val valuable data. The, the keys are, are contained in the secure area. You pull the CPU out, which has the secure area in it. You put it in something else that can muck with it and steal those keys, and you got the keys. This thing prevents that, and basically it guarantees that this server will, you know, that this CPU, these keys will never be used outside of a secure chain of trust. So it's not so much that it's locking it to Dell. I don't blame Dell for implementing this feature. In fact, I'm excited that Dell implemented this feature because it means that basically once you turn that stuff on, you're, you're pretty good, except if somebody hacks into Dell's secure BIOS. But the point is, um, you're, you're, it's actually a cool feature. It's a good feature, but it's also terrifying because of the secondary market. As uh, Serve the Home points out, I mean, they're big users of this. They discovered it because they're swapping CPUs around. 
Um, man, let me just tell you folks, if you buy an Epic server CPU on eBay in the next 30 years, you gotta know if it's been used in a Dell EMC server, because if it has, you can't use it unless you have one with the proper signed BIOS. Yeah, uh, I, 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 this has echoes of the video game market and a lot of other markets. Remember the DivX uh, self-destructing DVDs all the way back in the day? Uh, I'm not saying it's quite that bad, but I mean, I think that this is a feature that has a lot of potential for good use and a lot of potential to be abused by people that are trying to block out, you know, like you said, the secondary market or lock out people that they don't necessarily want to be involved with it. So um, fingers crossed, time will tell. Dell, EMC, HPE, this is your chance to prove us wrong. So I hope that we do. All right, we added one more story here at the very end uh, because I just thought it was kind of hilarious. Um, you may have seen some noise coming around on the internet that someone's trying to get a payday. Uh, the seventh largest Bitcoin wallet in the history of the world is currently attempting to be brute forced. Why? Well, there's 70,000 Bitcoins in it and someone lost the password. Uh, so according to reports from some of the Bitcoin um, uh, intelligence companies, there has been a, a wallet that's being passed around on some Bitcoin forums and hackers are basically stepping up to bat like the big mallet machines at the carnival trying to see how strong they are. Um, I noticed this online because the person who's now currently working on the wallet tweeted at Google and said, hey, can I borrow a quantum computer for the next week to see if I can get through this? Now, normally you wouldn't think that that was such a big deal because why am I gonna waste all these resources? However, the value of the Bitcoins that are currently contained in the wallet are somewhere in the neighborhood of $690 million. That would be a hell of a lottery payout if you wanna try to take a swipe at this thing. So Steven, I gotta ask you, you and me, are we going to set up an AWS cluster and are we going to try to make this thing pay off for us? Well, first, no, it's not <laughs> ours. What's wrong with you? Seriously? Um, no. Also, there's no evidence that this wallet actually contains anything. That's the thing. You can muck with it to make it look like it has a Bitcoin balance that it doesn't have. That balance might have been there and be gone. That balance might have never been there. And also, it's not yours. Like, what's wrong with you people? Didn't you? Don't you have a mom? I mean, come on. Now, if somebody lost theirs, now that like that that one great story about the guy who lost his, um, you know, lost his password and 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 managed to to get into it. More power to you. That's that's totally cool. Um, even if the guy who threw out the hard drive decided to brute force his own wallet, like that's, I, I got it. I gotcha. Um, but I'm sorry, just finding one that you think has a high balance and then trying to hack it. What's wrong with these people? Also, it's not going to work. Let's just put that out there. They're not going to brute force this thing. No power in the verse can brute force that thing. And there's no telling that there's anything in that except maybe a dude with an Android. Sorry, the Firefly. Anyway, okay, go ahead. No, I mean, it's the, the wallet is double encrypted with AES 256 CBS and SHA 512. So uh, basically, you're not getting into it. And if you do, I'm sure that some very nice folks from the NSA will be paying you a visit and giving you a job offer you really won't be able to refuse. So good luck. I doubt you're going to get to keep anything you find. And, uh, you know, here's hoping you invent a new encryption algorithm. If you do, maybe HBO will uh, make a show about you. All right. That'll just about do it for this. Note, I'm sorry to say, but um, uh, sorry, I, I just wanted to jump in, Tom, and, and just kind of finish up on that, too. 
Um, also, there was an interesting story over um, Bruce Schneier's blog about the search for quantum uh, proof cryptography. Um, it's hard to read the presentation unless you know a thing or two about crypto cryptography. But um, but still, the, it's important to understand that there is such a thing as quantum resistant cryptography. It is being worked upon. Uh, we'll see. We'll see where that goes. Um, also, I will point out too that um, not to make anybody crazy, but um, there's been a strong suggestion that Bitcoin could again rocket up and become a huge, huge deal um, in terms of value. So um, these guys may not be so crazy after all. They're evil, but not crazy. Which is, you know, basically every good supervillain that you've ever seen. Evil, not crazy. All right, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode of The Rundown this week. Um, please enjoy National Wiener Schnitzel Day. Uh, you know, teddy bears and wiener schnitzels go together. Uh, we also thank you for tuning in to The Rundown. Um, next, all next week, we're going to be working on uh, with NGINX to present their NGINX Sprint Virtual Conference and Hackathon. So if you want to check out a little bit more, head over to NGINX.com to learn a little bit more about what we're doing. Uh, register to attend this free event. We're going to have Tech Field Day presentations running all day on Wednesday and part of the festivities on Tuesday and Thursday as well. And you get to see my beautiful co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett, doing his lovely uh, day job during that. So, Stephen, do you have anything you'd like to tell us about NGINX Sprint? Did we cut out? All right. Um, for some reason, I think Stephen's kind of uh, lost in the lost audio. <laughs> Stephen's lost his audio, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, and close this out. But remember that the rundown is going to be available every week as a podcast, as well as on YouTube. So if you uh, need to check in with us on your favorite podcast application of choice, please do so. And remember to like us and leave a review in iTunes because it helps other people find us. You can also tune in every week, every week on Wednesday at 12:30 p.m. Eastern Time at our YouTube channel, YouTube.com/slash/GestaltITVideo. If you happen to be watching us on Facebook after the fact, um, you know, thank you very much. Uh, if you're watching this live, head over to facebook.com slash IT, see some of our previous episodes of The Rundown, as well as some of our podcasts and other great things that we do. Um, until next week, for myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for my wonderful co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett, and for the rest of the Gestalt IT family, we wish each and every one of you to have a super sparkly September day. Bye-bye.